Matthew chapter 24. We'll begin in verse 1. We'll go to the verse 14. This is page 829 if you want to follow along in the, the Pew Bible. 829. This is God's word. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father in heaven, we've, we've arrived now at, at a difficult text. I pray that you would guide us by your spirit. Would you give us understanding? Lord, I pray that I would not lead your people astray in my study of the text, in my preaching of the text, but I'd be faithful to your word this morning. Lord, I pray that we would trust your word above all else. Keep us from being led astray. Keep us from being alarmed and help us to endure, Lord. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, how many of you have followed a Bible teacher before that made a prediction about when the end would come? You don't have to raise your hands. I don't want to embarrass you. But, but for those of you, I'm not picking on you, okay? But for those of you who are 50 and older, you have quite a few of these folks that have made waves over the last few decades. And part of that It, the nation of Israel was established after World War II. And in a lot of people's minds, this was a really big deal. If Israel was being reestablished, then surely there was some prophecy being fulfilled, right? Surely something important had to be happening. And so people started counting days from that time. The, the, the clock was counting. They thought maybe the rapture was coming within that generation. So for the last 73 years, we've seen repeated blunders in trying to guess the date 
Chuck Smith, right up the road in Costa Mesa, Costa Mesa, Calvary, said Jesus was coming back in 1981. And then a, a, a great tribulation would begin in the summer of 1986. Well, he didn't, and it didn't. Jerry Falwell, absolutely sure that Jesus would come back between 1999 and 2009. He didn't. Remember Harold Camping? His first guess for the rapture, and we'll talk about what that is later, not this week, but later. His first guess, though, was May 21st, 1988. Again, 40 years, one generation after the establishment of Israel's borders. He was wrong. He thought, well, maybe I was off by six years, and he redid his calculations. This time, 1994. Wrong again. He tried going off a different start date. Rather than working from 1948 onward, he based his calculations on the date of when he thought the flood was, the flood from Genesis. And he added 7,000 years to that and came up with May 21st. I don't know why he likes May 21st, but May 21st, 2011. Wrong again. There was a book in, in our office, in the secretary's office. It was not Julia's book, but the old secretary's office. I don't remember who wrote the book, and the author probably wouldn't admit that he wrote it anymore anyway, but, but the book showed with absolute certainty how Operation Desert Storm was the war, the war that was bringing about Armageddon and the end of days. It didn't. But really, every generation has had these thoughts. Every generation wants to believe we are the last generation. John Wesley thought this. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodists, made predictions, and he missed. Joseph Smith made predictions, and he swung and missed so hard, he entirely started a new religion. <laughs> so did Charles Taze Russell, who thought surely it would be 1914. Nope, maybe 1915. Nope. And yet people still followed him. There have been end times predictors going all the way back to 500 AD and before that. Every war feels like the war. Every earthquake, every tsunami, every famine causes the people who are surrounding these events to, to ask, is this it? This must be it. This one's worse than the last one. But that's just confirmation bias, isn't it? Every generation wants to believe that things are worse for them, worse for us, than they have been for previous generations. And in a sense, they're kind of right, because with every generation, we get closer to Christ's return. That's self-evident. But the question before us, as we begin to study a rather apocalyptic chapter of the Bible, the question is, what do we do about it? Do we, should you quit your job? stockpile guns and ammo and canned goods and build a bunker and hunker down because the man comes around. <laughs> that's Johnny Cash reference. Sorry, you guys. That, that's not what Jesus teaches, though. Instead, in our passage this morning, he gives us instruction that we can summarize with one word. What do we do in light of all of these things? Endure. The entire point of verses 1 through 14 is this. Endure. How long, Jesus? How long do we endure? Endure to the end, Christian. 
if you're taking notes, you can write down that the main point of this morning's passage is endure to the end. And where do we get that? We get that in verse 13. Do you see that? The one who endures to the end will be saved. So that's our, that's our big flashing main point. Underneath that big flashing sign, we have these two supporting commands that Jesus gives us in this passage. The first we saw in verse 4. He said, see to it that no one leads you astray. The second supporting command is in verse 6. See that you're not alarmed. Do not be led astray. Do not be alarmed. If you're led astray, you will not endure to the end. If you become alarmed and you become anxious about what's going on in the world, you will not endure to the end. Therefore, if you want to endure to the end, do not be led astray and do not be alarmed. It's simple logic, isn't it? That's Jesus' instruction for his disciples in this passage. And that instruction is just as relevant today as it was for the disciples back in 33 AD. And we know that's true because of the nature of prophecy. That was the point of last week's sermon. And in particular, this prophecy. Last week, we learned about how we are to read and understand prophecies in Scripture. And if you'll remember, there were four marks that characterize most of the prophetic writings of Scripture. There's two authors. Here's our first mark. There's two authors. Human and the Holy Spirit. That's true for all of Scripture. Isn't it? But it's also true of prophecy. Second mark was that there's often symbolic language used in prophecy. We saw that in Isaiah 13. The third mark was that there are often two or more fulfillments of prophecy. Sometimes not, but, but more than often, there's two or more fulfillments of especially these eschatological, these end times prophecies. The fourth mark was that prophecies... Like the rest of Scripture, prophecies are interwoven with all of Scripture. So in our passage this morning, which is a prophetic passage, Jesus gives the disciples guidance that is particularly relevant to their lifetime. That's the near fulfillment idea. Jesus even says later on in verse 34 of this passage, he says, truly I say to you, this generation, what does he mean by that? He means the people who I'm talking to, the people hearing me, this generation, the people living as I'm saying these words, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All what things? Well, everything, verses 1 through 34. That's a lot of things, isn't it? And Matthew, led along by the Holy Spirit, writes all these things down that Jesus said so that the church of his era, that generation, would be encouraged, that they, they, would be, they would be strengthened for what God was calling them to. But, but the Holy Spirit, the second author, included us as the intended audience. The Holy Spirit intended that, that chapter 24 of Matthew would be a helpful encouragement for you and me today. And if that seems confusing, just stick with me through the next couple weeks because we're going to be seeing more and more of this. You'll get used to reading Matthew 24, a prophecy, on these two different levels. 
But what we're going to do today is, is just move through the text. We're starting uh, beginning with, with verse 3, and we're going to move through the text with Jesus' big instruction in mind. All right, endure to the end. And what we're going to see is that the disciples were, were at risk of being led astray and that they were at risk of being alarmed. And so Jesus sees these things and he encourages them and, and dissuades them. And we'll also take to heart how those two instructions would help us. All right, so let's start at the beginning. Look at, look at verse 4, there's verses 3 and 4. In response to the questions from the disciples, when will these things be and when will you return? Jesus answers them, but his answer, look at his answer. It's not one of those kind of Daniel-type answers, time, times, and half a time, or six years, or when the blood moon rises. In fact, Jesus doesn't even answer this question directly. Look what he says. They're asking, when will these things happen, which is a time question, isn't it? And Jesus answers them, see to it that you're not led astray. Disciples want to know when Jesus is returning when the temple is going to be destroyed, and when the end is coming, they think this is all one bad day or good day. They just want a date. Why doesn't Jesus give them a date? Would that be so hard? All, all the rest of chapter 24 and all the rest of chapter 25, would, and a little bit of chapter 26 could be completely done away with. All of this confusing prophecy, these parables about virgins with lamps and robbers in the night and people burying money, all of that could be avoided if Jesus would just say when he's coming back. Now, never mind that Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back, but what Jesus does know is what his, his brothers need. He, he knows that what the disciples need more than anything else is to remain steadfast and to not be led astray. They need that instruction more than they need a date. A date wouldn't help them. It's Memorial Day weekend. It's when we remember those who have fallen in our nation's wars. So let's think for a, a minute about a soldier on a battlefield, okay? What is more helpful to the soldier? Is it better for the general to tell his troops, this war will be over three years, three months, and three days, mark your calendar? Or, or is it better for him to provide training for the battle? Is it better for the soldier to know how much longer he needs to survive, or is it better for, for him to know how to survive? It's better to be equipped to endure the battle, isn't it? It's better to know the enemy's strategy and the enemy's tactics. It's better to know who to follow and what to watch out for. So that's the type of instruction that Jesus prioritizes here. How to endure to the end. Survival strategy number one, verse four. See that no one leads you astray. Jesus knows with certainty, he's been saying it all throughout Matthew's gospel. He knows with certainty that his followers will experience trials. Look at everything that's about to happen to the disciples. Verse 6, there will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes. 
Verse 9, Christ's followers will be delivered up and persecuted and killed. They'll be hated just because they follow Jesus. Verse 10, it will appear to Christ's followers that the entire church is falling apart. People will lose their faith. People that they thought were Christians will betray them. Verse 12, lawlessness will increase. The love of many will grow cold. It will feel like this whole Christian experiment has failed. And all of these things, again, verse 34, all of these things, Jesus says, will happen in that generation. And they did. And in the midst of all these things, the disciples and the Christians that the disciples will be leading will be thinking, I mean, imagine seeing all these things just 15, 20 years after Jesus has ascended. They'll be thinking, surely Jesus is returning any day, right? Or maybe we've done something wrong. Why is all this, why is all this happening? Maybe we missed something. Maybe there's a secret teaching that we missed. And Jesus is simply telling them right here ahead of all of these things, before they happen, don't be misled. False teachers will rise up. People who say that they are Christ will rise up. And they will try to solve all of your problems for you. Don't listen to them. Don't be led astray. Isn't it true that when everything around us seems to be falling apart, we just want an easy answer? Give me something neat and tidy. Tell me why this trial is happening. Tell me, tell me why all of these bad things are happening. And tell me what I can do to make it stop. That's what we want. And because of the demand for this type of itchy ear satisfying teaching, the supply of teachers who will scratch our ears with this type of teaching is huge. There's always a lineup of men and women ready to give an easy answer. This started all the way back at the founding of the church. From the very beginning, right on cue, exactly as Jesus said it would happen, false teachers started popping up. Read the New Testament. Read the book of Acts. Every single letter of the New Testament is addressing some false teaching. Oh, you Christians, the reason things aren't going your way is because you aren't keeping the whole law. You've got to be circumcised. Or, or maybe, maybe things aren't going well because you're, you're doing worship wrong. You've got to worship angels. Or maybe you need to speak in tongues. Or maybe you've got to stop eating meat. Or maybe you've got to stop drinking wine. Or maybe Jesus has already come back and you missed him. Maybe he's not coming back at all. Maybe he's not even the Messiah. All of those teachings occurred and more within the first 20 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And all of them cropped up from within the church, exactly as Jesus said they would. And all of those false teachings led many people astray. And the love of many did grow cold. Read, read the letters to the churches in Revelation. Trials make us vulnerable to being led astray. That was true then. It's true today. 
Think, think today about the popularity of televangelists in all these healing ministries. What do they teach? Well, the reason you have, the reason, the reason you're going through this trial is that your faith isn't strong enough. Your suffering, your sickness, your poverty, whatever it is that you're going through, you don't like, it's due to your lack of faith. Use this magic oil. Pray this magic prayer. Call out for these angels. Tap your, your ruby slippers together. If you'll, if you'll believe hard enough, everything will get better. And what does Jesus say? All of these things are coming. Expect these things. Persecution is coming. Wars are coming. Famine is coming. And it has nothing to do with the strength of your faith. These things are necessary. Look at verse 6. This must take place. That word must, especially in the original language, that indicates that these things are a divine necessity. They are a part of God's unfolding plan. These necessary events will occur no matter what we believe. We must endure them. Okay? And to do that, Jesus says, stay in the faith. Do not be led astray. When times are difficult, when, when trials come, we want easy answers. We will change our theology. We will change what we believe about who God is just so we can have these easy answers. There's a, there's a false teaching prominent in church circles today known as open theism. Have you ever heard of this? Open theism. The idea is this. God could not possibly be all-powerful and all-good and all-knowing at the same time. Otherwise, he would not allow suffering in the world. You've heard that before. And so what open theists do is, is remove the all-knowing attribute from God. They surmise that God can't see the future. And that solves the, that problem for them. God, God didn't see the future coming. If he had seen the future coming, well, he would have stopped that war, or he would have, he would have kept Hitler from being born, or he would have stopped this child abuse, or he would have prevented this mass shooting. If only God could have known about these things, well, then he would have stopped them. And the easy answer, right, that... that False teaching, the easy answer is to say, well, God didn't know. He didn't see it coming. He's just as surprised as we were by these things. It's false, isn't it? And that way of thinking about who God is has led thousands of Christians away from trusting in God's sovereignty. We could go on and on and on throughout the history of the church Examining, we could just spend years here examining every single false teaching that has made its way through the church. But no matter what we would come up with, we'd find that the lesson to be learned for all Christians throughout time has been this. There are not easy answers. There's not something that makes trials go away. The easy answers may, may help put our minds to ease temporarily. They, they may relieve the pressure for a little while, but in the end, here's the truth, if our desire for comfort is greater 
then our satisfaction in Christ will fall away. So, endure. Endure. See to it that no one leads you astray. Well, the second thing Jesus commanded his disciples here was, was do not be alarmed. You see that in verse 6? Now, why would they be alarmed? Should be easy. The reason that they might be alarmed is all these events. Especially the events in verse 7. These events in verse 7 that will occur in the lifetime of the disciples will seem to them like judgment has arrived. Let's just look at these. In In the Old Testament, whenever there was a war, or when a nation or a kingdom rose up against another one, it was often thought of as as God bringing his judgment. And oftentimes it was God bringing his judgment. Think about the Isaiah 13 passage from last week. God was raising up the Medes to destroy Babylon. That was a nation rising up against a nation, bringing judgment on a nation. Before that, Habakkuk tells us that God raised up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to punish his own people. What was that? That was judgment. Nation rising against nation. Before that, God had raised up the Israelites to bring judgment on the Amalekites way long time ago. Judgment. The history of the Bible. All the wars in the Bible. This is this long story of God's glory coming through these various judgments. So so whenever wars were happening and, and nations and kingdoms were being raised up against other nations and kingdoms, the theological understanding for a Jew listening to Jesus would be, Oh, this is God's judgment. So what Jesus is getting at here is that the occurrence of this succession of all these wars, rumors of wars and nations and kingdoms being raised up against other nations and kingdoms, to any Bible-reading Jewish observer, they would think that these are indicators that judgment has come. Jesus says, no, not yet. Don't be alarmed. This isn't it. Look at verse 8. This isn't it. All of these are the beginning. This is just the beginning. And look at these other occurrences in verse 7. Famines, earthquakes. In the past, when God sent famines on Israel, what was that? Judgment. Jesus says, don't be alarmed, this isn't that. Earthquakes were also thought of as a sign of judgment. They were also thought of as a sign of the coming of God. So either way, Earthquakes are going to be alarming. Look, look at what Isaiah 29.6 says. So remember, remember what the disciples are asking. When are you returning? Look at what Isaiah 29.6 says. You will be visited by the Lord. That's the Lord coming. You will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. Look at Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. These earthquakes, whether they're judgment or or, or they're signaling the coming presence of God, the disciples are going to see and hear about earthquakes and go, "Oh, oh, he's coming. This is it. The Lord has returned. And yet Jesus says, nope. Don't be alarmed. All of these things will happen, and you've got to know the end is not yet. This isn't it. This is just the beginning. Look at verse 8. All these are but the beginning. It will seem to you as if final judgment has come. 
It hasn't. Don't be alarmed. Stay faithful. Endure. It is really easy to be alarmed, isn't it? Who was alarmed last year? I was alarmed like every day last year. It's really easy to become anxious and alarmed about the things that are occurring in the world. Why do you think Fox News and CNN and MSNBC run these insanely provocative news stories 24-7, 365? Because we love being alarmed. We're addicted to it. It makes money for them. Why do crazy conspiracies travel across the Facebook so quickly? We love the feeling of being alarmed. Bill Gates is putting brain-controlling robots inside the vaccines. The vaccines are the mark of the beast. Donald Trump hates black people. He's a Russian operative. Joe Biden works for Xi Jinping. The president has dementia. Well, he might actually. But, <laughs> but we relish in the sensation of being alarmed, don't we? It makes us, when, when we're alarmed and we're reading this scroll of all of these things on the internet, we feel like we're being productive. In reality, what's happening, it's distracting us from being faithful. We, we get addicted to social media and we scroll and scroll and scroll because that, that feeling that we get, that sense of alarm, that rush of adrenaline reminds us that there are other people and they're against us and we're with these other people. And we think this is it. This could be the end. And that sensation is addictive. And Jesus says, Christian, don't be alarmed. So listen, this is me to you. This is not thus saith the Lord. Okay, but if social media or corporate media causes you to live in a constant state of alarm, remember, first of all, that's what they're designed to do. Okay, that, that's why they're addictive. But here's me to you, pastor, congregation, get rid of them, please. These are not neutral tools, right? They're not neutral. They are being used to paralyze you and to cause your faith to grow cold. And I can promise you right now, if you will decrease your media consumption, you will be more joyful and less cynical and less alarmed, right? There's a direct correlation. We as Christians are to be so confident in Christ that we can't be shaken. We can't be shaken by the world or by any news coming from the world. Our confidence is to be in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means sovereign over all. He's Lord. He's in control. He's the King. And because we belong to him, nothing can hurt us. Not death, not persecution, nothing. So don't be alarmed. Trust King Jesus. Live in obedience to him. Keep proclaiming the good news. Jesus is King. He loves me. He died to save me from this world and my enslavement to sin. And my king was raised from the dead and he's coming back again. Repent and be baptized and follow him. And we're to keep beating that drum. Beating that drum. No matter what happens. If there are earthquakes, 
or there are tsunamis, or there are famines, or there is drought, don't be alarmed. If there's an economic collapse, and you lose your retirement, and your house becomes absolutely worthless, don't be alarmed. If the U.S. becomes a communist nation, don't be alarmed. If they tell us we can't gather anymore and believe and preach the Bible, don't be alarmed. Your pastors get arrested. Don't be alarmed. Even if our denomination, following the world's GPS rather than Christ's, we take a sharp left turn and end up in apostasy. Not we, but if the denomination does, we won't, right? Don't be alarmed. Why shouldn't we be alarmed? Because all these things, the wars and conspiracies and famines and earthquakes and the false teachers and the antichrists and the falling away of Christians, all of these things have been happening since Jesus ascended into heaven and they will continue to happen until he returns. All of these things, Jesus says, are just the beginning. Beginning of what? Look at verse 8 again, of the birth pains. Now that is, remember this is prophecy, so that's figurative language. Now where have we heard that before? We read Isaiah 66 earlier. Thank you, Christian, for reading that. We read Isaiah 66, and you, you may have noticed that there was a prophecy about the end, right? And really, there was a prophecy about two different ends. The end of the temple, at the beginning of Isaiah 66, the judgment of God's people, but also the end of creation. There were, there were two parts there. Remember, most prophecy has these two fulfillments. In the first six verses, God reminds his people that he is, first of all, infinitely bigger than the temple. Can you click up Isaiah 66, 1? Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. So he's comparing heaven to the temple. The, his people think that he lives in the temple. And he says, no, heaven is my throne. The, the entire earth is my footstool. What is this house? What is this temple? What is this house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? And then the Lord goes on to say that because his people were so obsessed with the temple instead of him, and so obsessed with these sacrifices rather than living humbly and with a contrite heart rather than obeying God's word, well, he's going to destroy the temple and bring judgment on rebellious Israel. That was Isaiah 66, 1 through 6. Why don't you flip over to Isaiah 66, because we're going to be there for a moment. Here's where you see the destruction of the temple. Look at verse 6. I'll put this one on the screen. The sound of an uproar from the city. Which city? Jerusalem. A sound from the temple. Which temple? The Lord's temple. The sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. That's the first end that is to come. Very similar to Matthew 24. The disciples are asking, when will the end come? When will the temple be destroyed? Jesus is saying, part of Matthew 24 is predicting when that will, will be. So we see that in Isaiah 66, that's coming. But then Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 8, we get another phase of the prophecy. What Isaiah says, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Now that doesn't happen very often, does it? Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before the pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Now, who's the son? Jesus, right? Sunday school answer there. Yeah. Who, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? 
Now here's the labor, here's the birth pains. For as soon as Zion, this is heavenly Zion, as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. So this is what Isaiah is saying. Before the labor pain comes, before the trials come upon one Israel, a son will be born. And then after the son is born, then come the labor pains. The labor pains will bring forth Zion's true children. That is to say, true Israel, the Israel of the promise. Well, who are these people? Well, Isaiah keeps going. Isaiah 66, verses 18 through 21. Look for all the nation's language here. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, nations again, to Tarshish and Pool and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. You see this? And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. Now what happened in verses 1 through 6? Temple destroyed. So this is some other type of Jerusalem here. Says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will make, take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. So, so, so here's, here's how we're reading this. The, the birth pains that we're seeing in Matthew 24, the labor that is these wars and rumors of wars and famine and earthquakes and all these false teachers and Christians enduring persecution, all of those birth pangs are a mark of the time when God is bringing forth from the nations children for his own glory, for his own kingdom. So, so we go back to Matthew 24 now, and we see all these things. We've got wars and famines and so forth. In verses 3 through 8, that's the beginning of the birth pains. Then in verses 9 through 12, we've got the persecution of Christians and false prophets and the falling away of Christians. More birth pains. And then verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. What did we see in Isaiah 66 as a result of the birth pains? The gospel of the kingdom goes to the nations. What do we see in Matthew 24 as a result of the birth pains? The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, so the trials of this morning's passage, everything we're seeing in verses 4 through 14, are the birth pains of heavenly Zion, the, the true kingdom, Christ's kingdom, kingdom of God. These trials are bringing forth God's children. It is through all of this trouble, and listen, through the witness of Christians during these troubling times, that the gospel will spread throughout the world, and God will gather in his children. So all of these events that we're seeing in this passage, they are not to be taken of as signs that final judgment has come. That's why Jesus says, don't be alarmed. These events are signs that the gospel's going out, that the nations are being brought in. And Jesus says, after the gospel's gone to the nations, then the end will come. Well, I can't get away with this one too easy because we have to ask which end, right? Which end? What does he mean by end here? 
Well, in one sense, he means the end of the temple age. Remember, that was the question the disciples asked. When will these things be? When will it be that there's no stone left on top of another in the temple? And in one sense, the gospel went to the nations before the temple was destroyed. I'm like, no way. Yes, it did. Look, this is how the apostles understood it. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This is Paul speaking to the Colossian church. Of, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Look what Paul says to the Roman church. Romans chapter 16, the end of the book of Romans. Now to him, this is a benediction, now to him who was able to strengthen you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings, has been made known to what? All nations. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, here's what we need to understand. To, to the apostles, who had not seen the new world... The world wasn't that big. And all the tribes and nations that they knew of listed in Genesis 10 had received the gospel. And in 70 AD, just a few years after Colossians and Romans were written, the end came. The end of Jerusalem came. The end of the temple came. The temple was destroyed. Meanwhile, the new Jerusalem, heavenly Zion, was bringing forth her children as the gospel of the kingdom went out to the nations. So that is partial fulfillment, though, isn't it? Right? The end of the temple came, that's a, an end. The near fulfillment of Matthew 24 has occurred. Partial judgment occurred, and yet Christ didn't return. Remember, two fulfillments. Okay, this is how we read Matthew 24, two fulfillments. The end end, the final end, the day of the Lord, did not arrive in 70 AD. Why? Because, because two fulfillments. Partial fulfillment already, yes. Gospel has gone to what they understood to be the nations. The end of the temple has come. Final fulfillment has not yet come. God is still gathering in his children. That's good. That's how you and I came to hear the gospel. Okay, so it's good that, that there was only partial fulfillment. God is still gathering in his children. He's still doing that through the same means, through the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom to the nations. The apostles thought that the world extended from Spain to India. The Spirit knew. The Spirit knew otherwise. The Spirit knew that there were hundreds and hundreds more tribes and tongues and nations beyond those places. People that needed to come under Christ's lordship. So friends, we, the recipient of this gospel, will continue to take this gospel to the nations. We will continue to endure in the faith no matter what happens. Wars and rumors of wars or famines and so forth. No matter what happens, we will continue in the faith so that our witness, our testimony, as Jesus says, our testimony would be to the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is king. 
He has caused us to be born again into his kingdom. He's transferred us from the kingdoms of the world into his kingdom. And now, now we live not for ourselves as representatives of ourselves, but for him. And through our lives and through our testimony, we bring him glory. And so, that, so, so knowing that he is king, we remain steadfast. We aren't led astray. We, we, we will not be led astray by those who would point us to another king. And we aren't alarmed that the world is opposed to his kingdom, to Christ's kingdom. By the spirit of Christ, we endure for his glory. Our endurance and our message, that's our witness to the watching world, all right? Let's pray and thank the Lord for this.